Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And this summer, as a special treat to all of our royal-loving listeners, we're going to be focusing on some of the shenanigans of some notable princesses in history. And last time we discussed Sophia Dorothea of Sulla, who was a pretty sympathetic character in her story, I would say. She was married off to an incompatible cousin at a young age, was manipulated by her father-in-law's mistress, who may or may not have been responsible for the murder of her own Swedish boyfriend. And to top all of that off, she spent nearly half of her life held prisoner in a castle. I mean, that really does top it off, doesn't it? Yeah, so we can definitely feel sorry for her. Yeah, even her husband's own subjects, both in Hanover and later in England, felt kind of sorry for her. But today's subject is going to be a little more uh, divisive, I think. Yeah, uh, we're going to be talking about Marguerite Louise d'Orléans, who was a near contemporary of Sophia Dorothea, and she was also a dynastic pawn for her powerful family. She also made an unsuitable match in her mid-teens and was held prisoner by her in-laws. But whereas Sophia Dorothea comes across as unlucky and maybe somewhat naive, Marguerite Louise seems like she would have been hell on wheels. (laughs) She really does. She was a firecracker. Um, Just to give you a sense of what other people have said about her. Eleanor Herman, who wrote Sex with the Queen, said she was, quote, born with an uncontrollable temperament, ill-suited to her royal position. You know, a position where you kind of need to keep your mouth shut most of the time. She also said she had a fearless, toxic nastiness. Encyclopedia Britannica called her a frivolous consort. And the Women in World History Encyclopedia notes that, quote, she showered invective on all within reach. So fun times here. (laughs) But um, best of all, I think, discussing Marguerite Louise is going to allow us to revisit our old friends, the Medici family. Ever popular. Yeah, people love the Medici family. And we're going to get to find out how exactly that illustrious line finally died out since way back when the Medici series began so long ago, we did discuss how they started. So full circle. But before we get to that, we're going to talk a little bit about Marguerite Louise's early life. So she was born in 1645 or thereabout to Gaston Duc d'Orléans and his wife, Marguerite de Lorraine. And Gaston was the son of King Henry IV of France and Marie de Medici and the younger brother of Louis XIII. And because he ended up being the only surviving younger brother, he was called Monsieur from a very young age. But it seems like Marguerite Louise's daring and her impulsiveness that we're going to discuss later weren't exactly unique to her her alone. It wasn't a unique family trait. No, her father started participating in plots against his brother, the king, at a pretty young age, including one to assassinate our old friend, Cardinal Richelieu. We talked about him during the Bourbon series. Being the heir to the throne, however, usually got him out of trouble. Got him out of losing his head, at least. Right. I remember Louis XIII and his wife didn't have children until decades into their marriage, and their son, the eventual Louis XIV, was truly considered a miracle baby. So for a long time, Monsieur was the only option out there. He had to deal with them. Right. So he had to stick around a while. Possible treason wasn't Gaston's only business, though. After his first wife died, 
died giving birth to their daughter. He eloped with Marguerite de Lorraine without permission from his brother. The king and Marguerite's father were actually enemies. And they were finally given the king's blessing, however, as their eldest daughter together, Marguerite Louise, was groomed to be the someday wife of her cousin, Louis XIV, and Queen of France. So she had a bright future ahead of her at that point. She did, or at least her parents were hoping she would have that future. And she did seem well-suited to the part. Herman notes that she had turquoise eyes, she had chestnut curls, she calls her, quote, voluptuous. And according to the Women in World History Encyclopedia, she also was accomplished. She rode well, she hunted, she was smart, she was witty, a brilliant conversationalist. And that last point got me thinking a little bit. It's a label you see applied to a lot of nobles and royals. And I always find it, it's a little hard to imagine what exactly it means, because I just jumped to somebody like Mark Twain, and I'm sure that's not what they were talking <laughs> about. Um, Anthony Fraser, though, writing in Love in the Life of Louis Fourteenth, helped me understand a little bit why this last accomplishment was considered so very important in this era. I mean, of course, it's still important today, but why it was crucial in this age. Apparently, upper-class women in France in this era were very, very poorly educated in the traditional sense. Only an estimated 14 to 34% could even sign their own names. But conversational training almost took the place of formal reading and writing training. And um, Fraser quoted a Madeleine de Scudery who detailed the ideal in feminine conversational ability at the time. And she said, quote, a woman in conversation should demonstrate a marvelous rapport between her words and her eyes. While she should, of course, be careful not to sound, quote, like a book talking, she should rather speak, quote, worthily of everyday things and simply of grand things. So it's a lot to live up to, I'd say. It is. and But unfortunately for Marguerite Louise, or at least for her parents' ambitions for her, rapport between turquoise eyes and worthy speaking wasn't enough to make a marriage between her and Louis. No, conversation wasn't going to cut it. He had a lot of prospects, mostly cousins, and ended up with his double first cousin. We've talked about this before, too, Maria Theresa, since their alliance could promise peace between Spain and France, who were warring at the time. Marguerite Louise, meanwhile, would marry Cosimo III de' Medici, heir to Ferdinand II, Grand Duke of Tuscany. But by this point, Marguerite Louise herself had fallen in love with another cousin of hers, one on her maternal side, Prince Charles of Lorraine. And he was 18 and a dashing soldier fresh out of Spanish prison. And this was actually, it would have been considered a really good match for the two of them. And Marguerite Louise's now widowed mother even approved of the idea, but Louis just forged right ahead with the Medici Alliance. He was working, according to the Women in World History Encyclopedia, under the advice of Cardinal Jules Mazarin. Again, you know, hoping to make some sort of alliance here rather than just having the family all marry each other. And plus, it might be worth noting, too, Louis had himself given up his youthful love uh, to make this dynastic marriage, so he probably wasn't about to make concessions for his young cousin. wanted so. everyone to suffer as he had. <laughs> That's not nice. Well, I don't know about that. But he (laughs) he was acting as king rather than loving cousin. But um, anyway, Cosimo, it is. That's going to be the groom. And in 1661, at age 16, Margaret Louise was married by proxy to Cosimo at the Louvre Chapel. And she had already given her engagement ring away. That's how not into this match she was. And while she was traveling to Tuscany to meet her husband and be married in person, she really took her sweet 
sweet time stopping too long at every uh, every city she went through to upset this tightly controlled pageant schedule for her progress. We've talked about that sort of thing before. The grand, slow-paced travel. She made right. it too slow. <laughs> and things didn't get better when she actually met her groom, too. I mean... In case you were hoping for some sort of stunning, like, actually, I do like you. Love You're not so bad sight. after all. Um, he, he's an unfortunate looking fellow. He had Popeyes, really oversized features. And, um, the main issue though was just their temperaments were completely incompatible. He was somber, serious. He was extremely devout. The papal nuncio described their incompatibility saying, quote, the prince is all gravity, but the princess loves nothing more than laughing. So, not a great couple, maybe. And it was probably emphasized, that disparity between their temperaments was probably emphasized by the type of entertainments Cosimo staged to try to make his new wife happy. Ballets and balls and feasts, things that probably wouldn't show him off to his best advantage. But despite these attempts to win her over, Cosimo didn't seem that into her at all, at least as far as producing an heir was concerned. And so probably this, combined with her homesickness for the French court meant that she tried to get out of the marriage early and actually requested permission to have it annulled and enter a convent back home. No dice, though. They wouldn't they allow this at all. So unable to simply leave the situation, she took up a more passive-aggressive way of showing her unhappiness, or actually a sometimes few passive-aggressive aggressive <laughs> ways. Yeah, sometimes just not so nice. Uh, for example, she refused to learn Italian. Okay, maybe that's not so bad. <laughs> but then sometimes she'd refuse to eat, and other times she would run a daily food bill that was ten times that of her husband's. So when she was eating, she was spending... Um, Sometimes she would just use the silent treatment for everybody. And that's then, my favorite. <laughs> when she started to talk again, though, especially for a brilliant conversationalist, right? Yeah. When she started to talk again, though, it wasn't, you, I, I would imagine they'd almost wish she just was still silent because she would mock her husband at court. Um, and we've already included that quote about showering invectives. So she wasn't saying nice things when she was talking. Her father-in-law, the Grand Duke, tried to rein in her outrageous spending and her behavior by dismissing her French retinue. She set them off smuggling the Tuscan crown jewels, so <laughs> she kind of got back they, at him in that way. They did get them back ultimately, but still, I mean, that's that's a bold move, Marguerite Louise. To stop her from coming and going as she pleased, her father-in-law put bolts on her doors and only allowed her out for promenades and court events. And she would also spend a lot of time just away from the main court, out of public eye, where everybody could hear her making fun of her new family. At one point, while she was staying at one of these Medici villas, she sent her husband a note threatening to throw a missile at his head should he attempt to follow her go bring her home, visit her at all. That probably didn't help in the whole uh, child-creating <laughs> department. Oh, just there. wait. When she caught malaria, she tried to blame it on the Medici penchant for poisoning. Louis basically told her to knock it off and asked the Pope to threaten her with excommunication. And when her in-laws finally had her imprisoned in one of their palaces in Pisa, she tried to escape with gypsies. I mean, if you're going to get out somehow, that's the way to go, I guess. <laughs> According to G.F. Young in the Medici, quote, finding her circumstances becoming thus ever more intolerable and that she could get no help from her relatives in France, she evolved the idea of escape from the contemptible 
Cosimo by joining a party of gypsies, with whom she was discovered one night settling all the arrangements from a window of the palace at Pisa, whereupon that mode of escape was made impossible. But since the couple would reconcile occasionally, it's hard to believe with all this going on that they ever would. But they did end up having three children. Ferdinand was born in 1663. Anna Maria Luisa de Medici was born in 1667. And Giovanni or Gian Gaston was born in 1671. Marguerite Louise also found time to entertain her cousin and old friend Charles of Lorraine, who was a frequent visitor at court and her lover, yes. incidentally. <laughs> another another wrench in this mix here. But in 1670, Ferdinand II died, leaving Cosimo the Grand Duke of Tuscany. And Marguerite Louise, I think at this point, was hoping, well, maybe if I have some little portion to govern myself, we can work this out. She was forbidden from taking any role in government, though, by Cosimo and his mother. And so she went back to one of the villas. And within two years, she decided that enough was enough. She was tired of of hanging around, just threatening her husband. And while she was visiting a small Tuscan town, she wrote to him saying that she considered their marriage essentially over. She wrote to her cousin Louis, explaining that since both parties had had multiple affairs, she really didn't see any point in staying in Tuscany and playing sort of prisoner slash grand duchess anymore. And Louis initially told her, well, okay, you're welcome to be a prisoner in France instead. (laughs) But finally, um, her her husband and her cousin worked things out. And by 1675, she was allowed to return to France to a convent outside of Paris. But it was understood that there would be certain restrictions on her. She chose to spend her time entertaining at court, attending parties and balls, and Of course, continuing to harass her husband, Cosimo. I mean, I shouldn't say of course. You would think that she had escaped him and would just kind of leave that life behind. But uh, but no, she actually chose to sort of stay in his life by... uh, by staying at his throat. According to Herman, at one point she wrote to him, quote, no hour of the day passes when I do not desire your death and wish that you were hanged. What aggravates me most of all is that we shall both go to the devil and then I shall have the torment of seeing you even there. I swear by what I loathe above all else, that is yourself, that I shall make a pact with the devil to enrage you and to escape your madness. Enough is enough. I shall engage in any extravagance I so wish in order to bring you unhappiness. If you think you can get me to come back to you, this will never happen. And if I came back to you, beware, because you would never die but by my hand. A mean, mean letter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For his part, Cosimo stayed very much interested in her, too. I mean, not just because he was paying a lot of her bills, but um, they were still very much involved in each other's life. But uh, this convent situation, we should mention one more thing about it, too, since she clearly wasn't living a retired life, as as Dublina mentioned, going out to parties and everything. When the convent's new prioress tried to really enforce the rules and keep her home like she she was supposed to, to be under the the terms of this arrangement. She supposedly threatened the woman with an axe and a pistol and then threatened to set the place on fire. So um, I'm think, thinking we're starting to see some signs of more serious <laughs> serious behavioral problems. But um, yeah, she was, she was not about to be reined in. Eventually, though, her outrageous behavior was too much for even 
all these amusing stories about Tuscany and Cosimo to be worth it anymore. And so Louis XIV finally banned her from court. And in 1721, she died at the age of 76. I think by then, actually finally living sort of a retired life and and um, trying to take things down a notch. Cosimo, though, was equally long-lived. I always think that's sort of that's what happened well, with she Sophia, knows she couldn't get Sophia out of too. It seems like <laughs> she, she couldn't get him in time. Um, yeah, he died in 1723 after a reign of 53 years, which incidentally was the longest reign of any Medici, even though during that time his duchy lost a lot of its prestige. He was succeeded by his youngest son, Gian, who was already into his 50s, unhealthy and childless. And with him, the Medici line of Grand Dukes ended, and he was succeeded by Francis, the grandson of Marguerite Louise's Duke of Lorraine, who we mentioned earlier in the podcast, and the father of Marie Antoinette. So strange connections on both sides. I feel like this episode has tied into almost every royal person we've ever talked about. Every series that we've done (laughs) in some way. One somewhat touching note to this bizarre story, in the early 20th century, two silver coins belonging to Marguerite Louise were found to actually be hollow, like little lockets or boxes, and one had a miniature of Charles of Lorraine as a young man inside it. So that's kind of sweet. Maybe if she just married her cousin, none of these nasty letters would have had to happen. Um, And kind of a fun fact, too, something decidedly good that did come out of this Uh, poor coupling. Her eldest son with Cosimo, Ferdinando, uh, who was also the child she was closest to, um, he had died before his his father, obviously. That's why he didn't become the, the Grand Duke himself. He was the patron of a man called Bartolomeo Cristofori. And Cristofori is the man who invented the piano. So, you know, it's a little connection there. Some sort of some sort of positive note for us to end yeah. on rather than um, you won't die by any hand but mine. <laughs> maybe he could have put music to her letters. Yeah. I feel like they were maybe the classical historical iterations of uh, the precursors to Alanis Morissette songs or something, like <laughs> well, breakup music. I mean, I was thinking they were kind of an operatic seeming couple. It seems like this would be a, uh, if not an opera from from many years ago than, I guess, some sort of Lifetime movie today. It does sound like something fit for Lifetime, I think, but also fit for a good series. So it's been fun to do these over the summer, and maybe we'll have some more coming up soon, some more princess stories. But if you have any suggestions for some that you'd like for us to cover, I feel like we've covered a lot of royalty over the years, but there are some key figures that get suggested all the time that we haven't gotten a chance to cover yet. So if you have any you especially want to hear about, feel free to write to us. We're at HistoryPodcast at Discovery.com. You can also find us on Facebook and we're on Twitter at Missed in History. And in the meantime, if you want to learn a little bit about royalty in a more general sense, we do have an article called How Royalty Works. You can check it out by searching on our homepage, www.HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.